Hello, I'm Ian Skillicorn of Wyndham Books, publishing the work of Ursula Bloom for a new generation of readers as part of a long overdue revival of this very talented and special writer. Now, you might not have heard of Ursula Bloom, but for most of her life, she was a household name. Between 1924 and 1981, she wrote over 560 books, which at one point earned her a place in the Guinness Book of World Records. As well as novels, Ursula wrote short stories and radio and stage plays. She was also a Fleet Street journalist, with such varied roles as Agony Ant, Beauty Editor and Chief Crime Reporter. Ursula's warm and witty novels lifted the curtain on British life from the Edwardian era to the middle of the 20th century, exposing its moral codes, dilemmas and often its hypocrisies. These are stories about the promises and disappointments of human relationships, within families and between lovers. Over the next five episodes, I'm bringing you Ursula Bloom in her own words. We'll learn about her life as a young woman in the Great War, how she broke into the publishing world, her success on Fleet Street, and her achievements as a crime reporter. This is Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words. It is difficult today to picture the 1910-1914 period. For then it was a bigoted world, the era of the autocratic individual, when today it has become the age of the masses. Society was carefully sectioned, all part of the imperial honeycomb. We were sons and daughters of an empire which we believed to be impregnable, and perhaps it was going to be the greatest shock of all to discover that, like other empires, it could fall. In 1910, I had left the comfortable pastoral rectory near Stratford-on-Avon, where I'd been brought up, for my parents' marriage had broken. I had lived a sheltered life, properly chaperoned, was too young to be out, a highly important moment in every girl's life, and had been educated privately at home. In fact, I had not been educated at all. Any money there was, and there was very little, had to be expended on the son, not the daughter. All the right kind of daughters married young, and this had been instilled in me as a duty. I wished to comply. Nothing would have enchanted me more than a pretty wedding and a romantic young husband, preferably a duke. I wished to do the very best for my family, which I loved dearly, with the faithful, rather pathetic loyalty of any nice young girl of that period. My mother, myself, and my brother Jocelyn moved to St. Albans. We received a meagre allowance from my father of a hundred and twenty pound a year, and although that was a period when living was cheap, and being parsons folk we were unaccustomed to luxury, the allowance was insufficient for our needs. My mother had to undergo an operation for a malignant growth, which we prayed would never return. We did not talk about it because somehow we felt that silence would strengthen our defences. It was quite wrong to leave your husband in those days, so we were under a social stigma, for my father, being a parson, could do no wrong. In St. Albans, need drove us hard. My frantic efforts to write for magazines had met with no editorial encouragement, and I began to lose heart in that direction. Gradually, the strain on our petty resources was too much, and as something had to be done... I was the one who did it. I had already committed a sin, 
for I had become engaged to a sympathetically-minded young man of twenty-three, entirely against my mother's wishes. At a dance I had met Monty, who was good-looking, danced well, and flirted, something quite new to me and most inspiring, I thought. Naturally, I had been lonely. I was sick for youth, and privately believed that one had to marry any man who kissed one. He was quite a nice young man and worked in an architect's office in St. Peter's Street. His salary was a hundred and twenty a year, and as three of us at home were living on that, I thought I should find it quite simple to manage on it with only two. Monty was connected with a cinema being built at the time to his design in Harpenden and owned by a certain Mr. Clements. The cinema required a pianist at thirty shillings a week and threepence off for the insurance stamp. I applied for the post, and with some regrets on the part of Mr. Clements, who, however, did not wish to fall out with the architect, I was accepted. In the Daily Mail, the leading article mentioned German troops were in Luxembourg. I remember that I was far more interested in the enormous front-page advertisement which urged me, Throw your powder puff away and use papier poudre, a triumph of toilet science. No nice girl used makeup, though all girls wanted to do so. The advantage of papier poudre was that being in book form, with cunning little leaves of peach colour, your father was not suspicious, and your mother never gave it another look. To discreet maidenhood, this was the last word. It now seemed as if something was about to happen which my brother and I thought was a good thing. It would be too bad if in the end the thrill of going to war was denied us. On Tuesday, August the 4th, when we were already halfway through the evening programme at the White Palace, Mr. Clement said that he wanted the national anthems of all countries who would be our allies to be played in a kind of potpourri at the end of the evening, ours as the final one. The cinema darkened again. Just above me, lights played onto the screen, and the tin clock on the piano top began to tick away the last vital minutes of the old regime. At the dramatic moments of one's life, one does not recognise the tensity of emotional crisis. Sitting there playing for Mary Pickford was just another night in my life, no more. When the end came, I played the national anthems, but the audience did not stay, for they were eager to rush out and hear if we were really at war or not. I closed the piano lid and pushed the borrowed music into a box, for at all costs we had to keep that clean or the shop on Hollywell Hill wouldn't take it back next Monday. I went downstairs into the foyer where Monty was waiting, in the green suit of the era. Have we gone to war? I asked. He didn't know. After the cinema and the late night, I did not wake until after nine. I dressed and went downstairs, where Mother was devouring the morning paper. Great Britain declares war on Germany, was the headline. The declaration of war, very much wanted by the masses, had let loose the passionate tide of patriotism. We were in a state of excited joy. Already recruiting offices all over the country were clogged by eager young men who had gone straight from Buckingham Palace last night to help England in her need. 
I did not see Monty that evening until I had played the national anthem, and the audience had shuffled out. He began to talk. There's something I ought to tell you, dear. I believe this war is more serious than we think, and every young man who can fight should. If my king and country want me, I'm going. In fact, I am going. He had been making inquiries and found that if he joined the army, they would give him twenty-four hours in which to put matters right at the cinema and with the office in St. Peter's Street. I could possibly work a little harder at the cinema whilst he was away. It couldn't be for long. Yes, oh, yes, I agreed. Then, in a timid little voice, But where will you go? I did not want him to go. I did not want him to be in danger. The land of hope and glory was jolly fine in a song, thought I, but I did not want it butting into my own life. You wouldn't go overseas, I implored him. I mean, you couldn't kill people. I shouldn't like it, he admitted, but I might have to. I mean to say, if somebody started to whack at me, my word, I'd have to whack at him, shouldn't I? I loathe the idea. I'd run away, I suggested, with female discretion. They shoot people who run away. It's desertion. I like that even less. At home, the dining room light was still on. Odd, I thought, and went to it. There was Jocelyn. Hello, he said. Then I've joined up. When I could speak, I said, You're too young. And anyway, you did promise mother you wouldn't. He ignored that. There was a long queue. I thought they wouldn't have me after all the illnesses I've had, but they didn't bother too much. Most of us were underage anyway. He was excited and did not want to go to bed, but wished to talk about it, for patriotism had got to him too, as it had got to all indignant English manhood. Mother and I waited to wave the column goodbye as they marched past our house at the end of August. We had word that the column would be passing our house about nine o'clock in the morning, so I got up, and there we were, waiting under the rowan tree, where we were doomed to wait, until at one o'clock I had to go off to the cinema. By then both of us realised that something must have gone wrong. I never knew what it was until I got home after midnight where Mother was sitting up in bed knitting socks for my brother, her face swollen with crying. The column had not begun to pass the house until four in the afternoon, and the hitch had been due to the hold-up of rations. The men had been served with their breakfasts as usual, but being expected to be on the march at eight, no midday meal had been arranged, and none ever appeared. It was two o'clock when they started, unfed and faint from hunger, and the shock of it all. When ultimately they came jangling down the Hatfield Road, my mother saw Jocelyn sitting on a gun carriage and looking like a ghost. Acting on the spur of the moment, she flew back into the house, snatched up bread and any available food there was, and rushed into the street to run beside the gun carriage and hand it over as she went. Fortunately, she was an athletic woman— and when other women saw what she was doing, they copied her. Monty? I said. What about Monty? Mother had not thought about him, only about her own son, which I suppose was natural. The column had gone, and we were aghast. 
for somehow we had never thought that they would not be fed. Since the column had marched away, Monty had written to me twice a week. He objected to the Royal Field Artillery as much as Jocelyn did, but said less, for all the young men who were not the white feather brand were determined to face hardship to win this war. I had an ominous feeling about his latest letter, and I read it with despair. Monty felt that our engagement had been in jeopardy for some time. He knew Mother disliked it, and did not suppose she would ever change her mind. He realized that because I loved her so much, it could only make for difficulties ahead, and he had had some time to think about it. Perhaps if the war had never come, we might have continued— but we couldn't, as things were. Mother had always said this would happen. It made me little happier that it was happening. For a moment I did not know what to do, then anxious for him, for he must have been horribly worried to write the letter. I scribbled a schoolgirlish note before Mother came back. Dear Monty, it's all right, I understand, but please write to me sometimes. Ursula. After that... Everything happened surprisingly quickly. Mother made a great decision. She saw that I was nearing a breakdown, doing far too much, and she called in Dr. Kinlock. He thought that St. Albans was too closely associated with my broken engagement, and suggested that we should get away, right away if possible. Mother had some hazy idea of going to the East Coast. The war scare had meant that one could get one's pick of houses there, Dozens were going for a song, and rents down to nothing, which was just what we could afford. Whilst I finished up at the cinema, with some regrets, I must say, Mother made one or two expeditions to the coast, and finally took a Queen Anne house in Savile Street at Walton-on-the-Nays. It had seven bedrooms, a rather dubious bathroom, a big sitting-room, and small back dining-room, at the rent of £25 a year, rates seven. Only ten days later we went down to Walton-on-the-Nays. Everyone was arranging and rearranging blackout curtains because the streets were shadowed by specials who came round bawling, Light showing! Put that light out! That very night the sea got up. The noise of the waves breaking on the open ground before the house was like gunfire, and even though the windows were all closed, the place got full of blown sand and smelt brackish for days. The sea, who was a stranger to me, did alarm me. The noise it made being new to me, I could not sleep in my room at the back of the house, and thinking Mother might be awake, I sneaked out. There was a streak of light under her door, and I went in. She was sitting up in bed, looking very haggard. Her eyes receded into dark sockets. Is, is something the matter? I asked. When she could speak, she said, I didn't want to tell you till the morning, but there's a lump. It's come back. I gave a little gasp, then pulled myself together. It may be nothing. It's easy to imagine things. One never knows. A rocket spat into the sky. Quickly the lifeboat went out into a raging sea, which now broke high over the ground before the house, and with morning we knew that there had been a wreck at Harwich. Thirty men on leave, and one officer, had gone back to their ship, 
and the boat had gone down. With the jaundiced light of a sallow new day, Mother said, You'll get a doctor, then we'll know. Anyway, that will be something. I'm going right now, I promised her. It's London in 1934. Anne Clements is stuck in a boring job and thinks nothing exciting will ever happen to her. Then a sudden stroke of luck changes everything. A Mediterranean cruise opens Anne's eyes to people and experiences far removed from her sheltered existence. But as she blossoms, the biggest question is, can there be any going back? Wonder Cruise is a sharply observed, charming novel by Ursula Bloom. The Daily Telegraph said, with every book she adds something to her reputation. Wonder Cruise is published by Wyndham Books and is available from Amazon as a paperback and ebook. Search for Wonder Cruise by Ursula Bloom and join Anne Clements on her journey of a lifetime. The milkman had told me where the doctor lived, and I went out. With morning, the open sea was pale green, churned into ugly hills and dales, growling as it broke. The tide had gone out. A coast guard stopped me at the end of the road where it joined the esplanade. I keep off the front, miss, he said. I have to go for the doctor. The beach is no place for a young lady this morning. The picket boat from HMS Conquest was wrecked off the naze in the storm, and the chaps are coming in. Isn't right for you, miss. As he said it, a horse and cart clopped along past me, a sea scout leading it, and a coast guard with a bearded face marching beside it. A Union Jack was flung over a lump in the back of the cart, and from under it there stuck out a blue jacket's stiff leg, dripping with water. It seemed to me that the dark line of water along the road marked his brief life, and I guessed that he would have been very little older than I was. I walked on, but a desperate urge to look back forced me, and I saw the beach at low tide, with dead men lying there. Crumpled men. Unreal, yet starkly real. It was the first time I had seen death and the storm-seared, wreck-spattered beach was humped with men who were not men any more. In the next few days I did not have much time to worry about the war, or the young men who had been drowned, for I was so much more worried about my mother. She was to have an immediate operation in the house. The district nurse would come in for it, and Mr. Percy Coleman, a surgeon from Clacton, would do it. When they came down to tea, which I had got ready for them, the surgeon spoke to me about it. She ought to live two years, he told me. I suppose he did not know that I had expected much more. I tried not to show what I felt. Two years? I repeated dimly. I'm sure you want the truth. Then perhaps he noticed that I'd gone pale, and he said, You'll marry, you know. You are a very pretty girl. But you don't need me to tell you that. You'll be all right. At Walton, when the world was quite still in the very early mornings, we could, if the wind was the right way, frequently hear the heavy booming of the guns in France. The earth vibrated with it, and we knew that an offensive had started. Then one day it seemed to be considerably nearer, quite alarmingly so. Possibly a mine at sea? I suggested.
Oh, no, said Mother. That's quite another sound. It isn't guns across the channel. I think that it is something here. Next day we knew what had happened, for the paper told us that the Zepps had been over, bombing Great Yarmouth, Cromer, and King's Lynn. All along we had felt sure that an attack from the air must come, and in one way there was the sense of satisfaction. Thank goodness, now it is here at last. Mother went down and got the paper early from the mat, and when I went in to see her she was sitting up in bed reading it. This is only the start, she insisted. I always knew that flying was a ghastly mistake, and we'll all be in the front line now. The Zeppelin raid on Norfolk was treated almost as if it had been an invasion. Public feeling became agitated, and security regulations were tightened, making the restrictions increasingly severe, and we were having further trouble with skimpy curtains which would not fit in spite of the ubiquitous safety pin. At night the specials were busy as bees in a hive, and where once a little chink had not mattered, now the merest suggestion of it brought them hammering on the door and making rude remarks. If raiders came, the scouts would give the warning on their bicycles, and their bugles later would give the all clear. This was undoubtedly the scouts' war. Not only had they been called up for war duties on August the 4th last year, but they were still at them. Mother was concerned that the Sea Scouts had to rescue bodies from the beach or sea and take them to the mortuary behind the cemetery. She felt that this was shocking for boys who were so young. But then the whole of the war was shocking, and most of all for youth. The thought of Zeppelin raids made everyone think what to do for the best when it came to shelter. The main wall of the house was one suggestion. The cellar was certainly an idea, and for rich families, excellent, for then Dad could get a drink when he most needed it. The spring was coming. It might be that the glory of fighting the war to end all wars was getting a bit tarnished, and we had secret apprehensions of what this spring might bring. At the same time, perhaps we had got through the worst. What next? I received a letter from Monty, who was being sent overseas. He was now a second lieutenant, the rank which topped the casualty lists, and that thought in itself was disturbing. He asked if he could come down for a night to say goodbye, and I asked Mother, sure that she would say no, but she said yes. I went up to the station to meet him, and we walked down the seafront to the house together. I had to admit that I felt strange and awkward, vaguely embarrassed, and he seemed to be considerably changed. He told me that he had joined what was known as the Suicide Club in the Army, a band of young men who volunteered for dangerous duties in the course of which they died like flies. We supped at home. Mother going to bed early, for she felt weak at the end of a course of radium, and the reaction was severe. Monty was sympathetic. He thought it dreadful for me to be living this way, and had come down with a plan. Would I marry him before he sailed, and so get the marriage allowance? I sat in the sitting-room, which gave the impression of affluence, an impression which had at all costs to be maintained— and I tried to think that this was one of the big moments in my life. 
all the time knowing that it was not. The whole of my future could change now, and suddenly I knew that I couldn't do it. In a sense, I'd grown away from him. This had come too late. I'm so sorry, I said, but I can't do it. He mentioned it again next day when we walked up to the station together, and I went into it more fully. I blamed myself for that unhappiness which perhaps had precipitated the return of Mother's illness, so I had dedicated myself to her. Whatever she wanted, I would do. But somehow I did not think that she would want me to marry him. We said goodbye calmly. I walked back and Mother was waiting at the gate. Her eyes interrogated me. She had a way of always knowing things about me, so I told her. He asked me to marry him, and I said no. I said, that was all. Mother and I would sit most of the day doing crochet on the front, in the marine gardens, watching the soldiers working on the sandbags and listening to the distant gunfire. Practice was what Mother always said, in case I got worried, but I think half of it was most certainly not practice. In the middle of the month, my father wrote to me, Dearest Ursula, I have got to come down to Walton to see both you and your mother about something which I think is very serious, and the sooner we all have a talk, the better. You are in considerable danger. Don't mention this or talk to any soldiers until I have seen you. I showed the letter immediately to my mother, and she could not imagine what it was about. She thought my father must have gone mad, and what he meant completely mystified us both. My routine life had been spent in nursing mother, in getting her out onto the front about eleven on sunny mornings, and sitting there talking to her or writing stories. That evening I went up to the station to meet him. We walked out of the station down to the seafront, and I showed him the reinforcements on which the soldiers had worked so hard, thinking this would interest him. It had quite the contrary effect, for he stared at me in complete horror and said, Would I please not mention anything of the sort? But why not? I asked. They are here for everybody to see. There's nothing secret about them, and we all talk about them. Not now, please, please, not now, said he. When we reached Mr. Barker's marine hotel, we went into the gardens and sat down there to talk. He said, Ursula, you've got to know, but something dreadful has happened. A letter has been sent to the bishop by someone from Walton who asked that their identity should not be disclosed. They wanted to know if you and your mother were wife and daughter of a clergyman called Bloom in Yateman Biggs Diocese. The bishop wrote back and asked them why. But why should anyone write to the bishop about us? I can't think. I begged him to reveal the name, but he refused. I suppose he couldn't do more. The second letter he received made him send for me, and the upshot was that he felt this was something I must know about and act upon. What did the letter say? I asked, not seeing daylight and thinking my father was only being silly. Apparently the special constables had had trouble with your house showing lights and once this had coincided with a Zeppelin raid. Everybody here has trouble with their lights at some time or other. Our curtains don't fit properly. They're better than they were, but they're not right yet. 
Why? The letter said that you and your mother spent all the time on the front, watching the soldiers and disguising your real intentions by pretending to do needlework. You wrote down what you saw in an exercise book. What do you mean by disguising our intentions? Of course I write in exercise books. They're my stories, said I. He turned his blue eyes round on me, and I saw that he was distraught. They suspect you of being German spies. This episode of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words, was adapted from Ursula's autobiography, Youth at the Gate, available from Amazon in paperback and as an e-book. It was edited and produced by me, Ian Skillicorn, for Wyndham Audio. Ursula's words are read by Lisa Armitage. To hear the next four episodes, subscribe to Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a positive review. It will really help us to spread the word. Find out more about the life of Ursula Bloom and where to buy her books from the official website, UrsulaBloom.com. Join me again for episode two of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words. Words.